I just got here. It's about 9.30 in the morning, and I'm in the Renaissance Downtown DC Hotel, which is the official hotel of the March for Life. I was here exactly a year ago today, um, and the mood is very different. Caroline Kitchener covers abortion for The Post. Last month, she went to the annual March for Life in Washington, D.C. In the past, it's been a protest, with the stated goal of overturning Roe v. Wade. Of course, this year, things were a bit different. Wow, there's March for Life wallpaper. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's, wall- there's March for Life t-shirts. Oh, a t-shirt that says, Real Men Protect Life. Definitely over 100 people just kind of milling around. They've got signs, they've got pins, they've got banners. Oh, we're the post-row generation. Yeah, I think we'll see a lot of that sign today. Certainly there was an air of jubilation. For 50 years, the national anti-abortion movement has united around one central goal, overturning Roe, and ending the constitutional right to an abortion. Now that they've succeeded, Caroline has been trying to figure out, what is the future of the anti-abortion movement? Is it energized or ready to move on? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Kim Belware. It's Thursday, February 9th. Today, the anti-abortion movement at a crossroads. We go to the March for Life to find out where the movement is headed next. So Caroline, tell us about some of the conversations you had with people attending the march this year. What stood out to you? Um, I'm a reporter with the Washington Post. I'm Caroline. Um, and we're just here trying to talk to people about what brought them out. Um, One early conversation that really stood out to me was with a mom and a daughter who had come from Kentucky. Hi, my name is Monica Condit. And I'm Katie Condit. I'm her daughter. Both of them were very, very, you know, opposed to abortion. But it was the daughter that said, she was a senior in high school, 17 years old in Kentucky, and she said to her mom, like, I really want to go this year. She was actually the impetus for this. Uh, Yeah, I have to admit, I have never been, and she was so excited about this. She's been involved with the Students of Life on a national level, and um, she's... uh, One thing that really stood out to me about this mom and daughter was their disappointment. You know, they were obviously really happy to be there, happy that Roe had been overturned, but there was also this acknowledgement from both of them that the war was not won. Like, the only thing that will really help us doing that is in your small communities, educating, like, trying to go educate these small women at the, like, pregnancy centers and stuff like that. They came from Kentucky, which is a very conservative place, which voted on abortion in November. There was a ballot initiative there. And to, I think, the surprise of many Abortion rights triumphed there. And, you know, both the mom and the daughter, they acknowledge, like, we don't have everyone with us yet. You know, the the daughter, she told me that she was heartbroken by the results of the November election. 
We had been praying so hard on that day that, you know, they would vote on number two and ban abortion. You know, her mom then said, you know, we, we, we need to change how people feel about this. It's not enough to just change the laws. In my mind, unless there's a conversion of hearts and people start to realize the value, not only of their own lives, but of the lives that God gives them, none of these things are going to change. And that actually was a, a kind of refrain that I heard again and again throughout the day. It was both jubilation and victory, but it was also an eye to what's coming next. So, Caroline, can you take us to the march and set the scene? What did it look like? What were you seeing and hearing when you got there? So the official day begins on the National Mall. You've got the Washington Monument in the background, and you've got the Smithsonian Museums on either side, and slowly... I think they all gather down there. The crowd starts filling up the mall, and you see kind of less and less open stretches of grass. Uh, we're walking by a pretty big group of clergy in robes. It's a really religious march. There are signs that say, stop abortion now, live life, choose life. Don't be a Democrat, buy a Trump hat. So, Caroline, given what you're laying out, the sense that this is a bit of a victory lap for the anti-abortion movement, but also that they're not done yet, what was the goal of the organizers this year? So one of the first people to talk was Jeannie Mancini, who is the head of the March for Life. We don't end as a response to Roe being overturned. Why? Because we're not yet done. And, you know, her, her, her face kind of came up big on the jumbotron amidst tape of the day that Roe was overturned. And one of the things that I remember her saying was, the next focus is federal legislation. She was direct about that. She was specific about that. And it was really a call to arms for the people that were there in that crowd, directing them to their next goal, which was a national abortion ban. She also echoed the sentiment that I heard from that mom and daughter from Kentucky. Essentially, it's not enough to just pass these laws. You also have to change people's minds. Caroline, based on your reporting, is a national ban the new unifying goal? That's such a good question. And knowing what I know about the anti-abortion movement, I'd say no. There are a lot of anti-abortion people in this country who don't think that that's the ultimate goal, who would like to see, you know, maybe a six-week ban or a, something that is a little, that's not quite like zero abortions anywhere. But, I, I mean, based on the people that we talked to, that that was the that was the goal that was in the air that day. So if not everyone agrees that just a national ban is the goal, what do they think the goal is? I think people want a lot of different things. One demand that I heard multiple times was that people need to do more to help 
women who are now going to be forced to carry their pregnancies. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, we knew we had to do something, and so... That was Anna Claire Flowers. I spoke with her and her friend, Brigetta Jones. They are both PhD students at George Mason studying economics, and Anna was holding this sign that really stood out to me. It said, women are amazingly capable, and then in parentheses, without abortion. Um, Personally, for me, I'm trying to help in any ways that I can. Just um, what have you been doing? Well, so I'm. Yeah, yeah. I'm. This Sunday, my church is doing a baby bottle campaign, um, raising money for our local pregnancy help center. So, and also, my husband and I are considering adoption and foster care in the future. You think about who are the people that are coming to the March for Life. You know, a lot of them are people who are super, super into this issue and want to, you know, spend a lot of time and energy and money to, you know, lead to less abortions in America. For me, it's a really tricky issue. Like, it's so divisive, and I have so many friends who don't see things the way I see them. And I think the overturning of Roe v. Wade was, like, one step, but just changing it to states' rights doesn't change, like, where society is. And so... A few people told me that they had been, you know, a little frustrated to see that more people had not been, you know, volunteering at crisis pregnancy centers or, you know, devoting resources to helping mothers who otherwise would not have had their babies. And and these people were really saying, you know, that needs to be the next cohesive focus of the pro-life movement. To me, honestly, overturning of Roe v. Wade, while it definitely is a huge victory and, like, the most important first step, it doesn't feel as powerful when, like, so many states, you can still abort children and it didn't change too much on the ground. Do you see people's minds changing at all yet? I don't know. (laughs) The reason why I wrote what I did on my sign is that what women are amazingly capable even without abortion is that I think even I have felt this kind of as a woman coming of age like it the message and the belief is that women need abortion to be successful Um, and that's just not true it's a very narrow definition of success Um, and so I think for hearts to change about this it goes all the way to um, one of the speakers was talk, just talking about we need more flexible work. We need, you know, people to be more supportive in their communities of, of parents and help out with child care. And it just has to be an effort that it surrounds the family and surrounds the mother. So what happens if the laws change, but the culture and the mindset doesn't? Like, where does that leave us? I still think it helps. Um, I still think even if the culture doesn't change at all, making it harder to have an abortion by not making it legal and accessible, that will save some children. I think what was striking about that particular part of the conversation is that, you know, these two women both recognized that the culture was not changing and that it was important for the culture to change. But they still believed, even if people did not get on board and did not agree with these laws, that we needed to have them anyway. After the break, how the movement is pushing to change those laws, both nationally and state by state. 
We'll be right back. Caroline, can you take us to the actual march and lay out what happens next? Because I want to understand what this actual experience might tell you about the broader movement. Yeah. So the demonstration wraps up, and then slowly people start to move. We are walking down the side of the mall. You know, I think... To a lot of people, it's a certain kind of party. We are turning toward the Supreme Court and around the Capitol. It's been interesting because there have been a couple junctures where people clearly aren't really sure where to go because it's different. Wow, so it sounds like there are some questions about which direction the movement is going to go, but also some literal directions. It sounds like the direction of the march this year was different. Caroline, tell us more about that. The difference this year is that the route changed. So instead of going directly to the Supreme Court, the route went by a bunch of house office buildings. People are um, coming out of the house office buildings, looking over the balconies. Um, They were coming out the doors to sort of wave and observe people going by. The thinking there, I think, by the, the March leaders was that You know, now Roe has been overturned. The next step is some kind of federal legislation. And the move to go right by these offices and make some noise right outside, you know, the the place where all of the representatives are are working was to, to pressure them to really back some kind of, you know, more forceful national legislation. So as you march past the Capitol, how much of this battle going ahead is actually happening at the federal level, and how much is actually playing out in the states? Right now, very, very little is happening at the federal level. There were a couple of bills that went on to the House floor, but they were really messaging bills. Um, They You know, even if they were to pass the Senate, which they won't, they wouldn't have actually really moved the needle very much on abortion on a national level. Right now, and I would think it's safe to say, at least until 2024, if there's a Republican president, very, very little is going to change nationally because Biden would veto anything. Yeah. And Biden said as much in his State of the Union address Tuesday. Yeah. But... If a Republican wins in 2024, there could be a huge national battle over abortion rights. And we could see a 15-week ban, a 12-week ban, maybe even a six-week ban. I mean, that's it's hard to imagine right now, but some of the folks that are likely to run for president on the Republican side have express support for extremely strict national measures. So that could be coming. But right now... Very much the battle is in the states. Which states are those, and what's happening there right now? So there are a couple of states that anti-abortion leaders, both on the national level and state level, are focused on. Those are states that have become big 
destinations for abortion. Some of them were destinations before, but particularly in the post-Roe era, these are places where lots of people are going right now because they do have relatively less restrictive laws, but also places that have GOP control in the legislature. So we are talking about mostly right now three states, Florida, North Carolina, and Nebraska. And in all three of those states, Republicans are voicing support and really seem to be pushing toward a six-week ban, which would ban abortions before most people know that they're pregnant. Caroline, what about in left-leaning states, like these kind of abortion havens where people have been flocking to get care? What does the fight look like right now in those places? Well, a few other states are moving towards more abortion protections. But I would say, you know, if you are an abortion provider in California or in New York or Connecticut or one of these states, it's, that's really safe for abortions. Probably the biggest thing on your mind right now is a court case out of Texas. An anti-abortion group called Alliance Defending Freedom has filed a case against the FDA, basically saying that, you know, when they approved mifepristone, which is one of the two drugs used in abortion pills, when they approved mifepristone over two decades ago, they did not have sufficient authority to do that, that that was not, that basically that they never should have approved mifepristone. And they are challenging that. And they have filed that lawsuit, which is sort of widely regarded as kind of wild. Like, that's just not something that's been done before, challenging that kind of, you know, FDA um, approval. But it was filed in the district of somebody who's widely considered to be, you know, an extremely conservative judge. And so abortion providers, even in blue states, are preparing for, you know, what they see as the worst. Yeah. And what for them would the worst case be? The worst would be a ban on mifepristone nationwide, which is essentially a ban on the way that we currently do medication abortion in this country. Oh, wow. That would be a sea change in so many places. So, Caroline, where is popular sentiment on this? Does the American public support these kinds of measures? Do the goals that you outlined in states via this lawsuit, do they align with what Americans want? By and large, no, they do not. And poll after poll shows that, you know, at least 60 percent of people support abortion did not want Roe v. Wade to be overturned. And I think we really saw that bear out in the November elections when, you know, even conservative states like Kentucky came out in support of abortion rights. So I, I think it's fair to say that the people on the march that day, they really don't represent the broader American public. Did you see any of that opposition come up at the march? What about counter-protests? What did you see from the abortion rights side? I did see a pretty sizable group of abortion rights protesters once we reached the Supreme Court. Abortion is essential! Abortion is hawker! Abortion is essential! Which was striking to me because... Generally, especially in past years, I know that the abortion rights side has really discouraged people from coming out. They 
they've really said, you know, just leave it to them that day. Like, let's not, you know, let's not kind of get in the middle of this. Um, you know, it's not necessary for our cause. But it was striking to see them there. That, that was a surprise for me. Reflecting back on the march, you know, Jeannie Mancini said the goal now is to win hearts and minds. Does that feel realistic or does it feel like the fight over abortion access is something that's going to remain in American culture for a long time? (sighs) Is it a realistic goal? That's a really hard question. You know, if you talk to the anti-abortion leaders, they will say that the farther we get from this Roe v. Wade decision, the more comfortable people will be with abortion being illegal because that is what they're used to. And so they are really banking on the fact that five years from now, 10 years from now, it will just feel more normal that all of these states don't have abortion as a legal option. I think that we will be fighting about abortion for many years and decades to come. I think that both sides do not want that to be the case, but I don't really see a way that this goes away. When one side believes that it's health care and the other side believes that it's murder, I don't know where you go from there. And it was really striking to me at the march that the anti-abortion people that we talked to, at least a few of them, they were sad that people didn't seem happier that Roe v. Wade was overturned. They also seemed deeply concerned about that and sort of unsure about how they got past it. And I do think that in the years to come, those people are going to be watching very closely and talking to people that might not agree with them and, and and from what they said to us at the march, trying to change their minds. And I just don't know that this is an issue where you can change somebody's mind. Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. Caroline Kitchener is a national political reporter for The Post. We want to note that her work covering abortion on Post Reports was honored this week with a DuPont Columbia Award. Big ups to Caroline and the whole team. If you want to listen to more of our coverage on this important issue, we'll have some links in our show notes. Today's show was reported and produced by Caroline and Alana Gordon, with help from Ariel Plotnick. It was edited by Robin Amer and Peter Walston, and mixed by Renny Svernovsky. Special thanks to our colleagues Michelle Borstein, and Justine McDaniel. That's it for Post Reports. I'm Kim Belware. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. 
Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.